3: Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gabfest for December fifth, twenty nineteen, the badly written and researched disaster edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in Washington, D.C. Joining me from New Haven, Connecticut, from the campus of Yale University, and the mind space of the New York Times Magazine is Emily Bazelon. Hello, Emily.
4: Oh, I liked that division of my life. That was good.
3: Thank you. <laughs> and then back <laughs> from back from somewhere. He just got back from somewhere. I don't know where he's been. Is John Dickerson of CVS's sixty minutes. Hello, John. We haven't seen you in a while. Or heard you. Hi.
1: I know. I know. I think I'll uh I'm not gonna tell you, but I'll Ooh, when the man story of mystery. runs, we'll see it soon. I like it. Yeah. We'll we'll know soon enough. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, I don't wanna scoop sc- scoop myself. Um but I'm I couldn't be happier to be back. I'm sorry that the The international travel did not work out. uh, So I'm happy to be back.
3: On today's GabFest, the Judiciary Committee takes up the impeachment investigation. Where is that investigation going? Will the president be impeached before Christmas? Then Kamala Harris drops out of the presidential race. Why did such a promising campaign fall so hard so fast? And what does it mean now that she's out? And then we will talk to Ruth Marcus about Supreme Ambition, her new book about Brett Kavanaugh and his Supreme Court nomination and hearings, and much more, and the conservative ambition to take over the court. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. Impeachment has stepped forward from the sexy theatrical fact-gathering stage to the Baslani legal phase. So this week, the... (laughs) God
4: save us all. The House
3: Intelligence Committee (laughs) sent a report over to the House Judiciary Committee uh, talking about what the president uh, is accused of doing and how that is impeachable. And the Judiciary Judiciary Committee held its first hearing on Wednesday about whether the president should be impeached with three constitutional scholars saying yay and one constitutional scholar saying nay. So uh, let's consider this whole landscape and let's start with – the import of the the kind of facts and the reports that the intelligence committee has gathered, John, the the kind of fact gathering phase of this seems to be largely <laughs> over. What in your mind is the the import of the report that was created and the, and the kind of sum of this past month or so of public testimony? Is this has has a very strong, persuasive, clear case been made that the public has a handle on and that Congress has a handle on?
1: The Republican position is all over the lot. Some people say. He did nothing wrong. Other people say he did something wrong, but it's not impeachable. That is still, after 11 weeks, still up in the air. Um, but in terms of the majority's report, I mean, the basic claim here is the president abused his office. He used the powers of the office that are given to him uh, for himself. Now, there's also the question of whether that can be defined as a bribe, which is helpful because the word bribery is in the actual Constitution, which just draws you a little bit closer to the definition of um treason bribery or other high crimes and misdemeanors and then there's the question of obstruction of justice particularly in with respect to saying basically he's not going to answer any subpoena at all of, of congress in any form does that amount to an to an obstruction of justice but the basic biggest thrust is and the central question is whether he abused his power so that's i'll stop there
3: um emily there was all this legal testimony from various constitutional scholars i'm sure all all cronies and buddies of yours. Uh, what do you think the import of that testimony, which was much less watched and I think much less explosive, uh, certainly in in the public presentation than the fact testimony of a few weeks ago?
4: Okay. So all four of them, including Jonathan Turley, who was the Republicans' expert, uh, either Forcefully said that the president's conduct is impeachable, or in Turley's case, refused to say that it wasn't. So that's interesting. If you think that this uh, bribe, or scheme, or plot, or pressure campaign, Happened, then legal experts are saying, like, yes, this is an impeachable offense. And I think you can also just think of it as like Trump was trying to steal the election if he did this. And that's an abuse of power that the system should have some way to reprimand and show is wrong so that other people, including Trump, don't do it in the future. The second question is one about process. And this is where Turley was really on Trump's side and arguing that the process has been unfair to him, that it's been too fast, and that because it's been too fast, we haven't heard from key witnesses. I think there's a really interesting question about speed, and we talked about uh, this with Jamel last week, and Jamel kind of talked me into thinking like, yeah, they are moving too quickly. But that's different from a question about fair due process. The obvious response to Turley's point that Trump is being treated unfairly is that the witnesses who are missing—Bolton, Pompeo, Mulvaney, a couple other people—aren't there because the White House is refusing to cooperate, is utterly preventing all the witnesses from complying with subpoenas, is refusing to turn over any documents, And so I just like – I just literally don't understand how you can say it's deeply unfair that the public and Congress hasn't heard from these key witnesses, deeply unfair to the president who is the figure who is preventing all of this information from reaching Congress and the public. That just seems like just totally contradictory to me.
1: Or you have to at least acknowledge that if you're going to be saying this is moving too quickly. And also, by the way, the other reason is – an argument, another refutation of that argument about speed is: well, first of all, a that's a political point; it's not a legal point in terms of interpreting the Constitution. B, the rebuttal is it has to be adjudicated quickly because what's at issue here is, as you put it, trying to steal the next election. You got to get that you got to get that figured out because the election itself can't be a remedy. Elect re-electing him or not re-electing him isn't a proper sanction for somebody who's trying to meddle in that future election.
4: Right. And look, Giuliani is like flying off to Ukraine as we speak to go try to meet with these ousted prosecutors who claim to have evidence that would be helpful to Trump. I mean, it's literally still happening. Dude, yeah.
3: One of the things that's so troubling about this entire process is the kabukiness of it, which I put 98 percent of that. Blame for on the Republicans who are, I think, are not in any sense being uh, honest or or uh, distinguishing themselves for in their public service that their that their behavior is hypocritical and and cynical and entirely partisan and and if the shoe were on the other foot they would be full of outrage there there's no way in which they actually believe the bullshit that they're saying about this president about his behavior and whether this is legitimate for a president to do. But there is this way in which there's this there's this kind of staginess about, where, you know, all these these elements and that the, it's very grave and that the impeachment is going to happen in this way when we all know what the outcome is. We all know the outcome is that he will be impeached by a, you know, entirely, you know, all Democrats or all but a couple will vote for it. No Republicans will vote for it. Then in the Senate, there will be a Senate trial, which will be highly theatrical and staged in such a way as to kind of try to embarrass Democrats because Republicans control it. And uh, at the end of that, he will not be convicted. And so the I find the, the kind of requisitioning of the founding fathers, the... The appeals to the the Constitution—it's obviously necessary. It's obviously important. Like is, this is a process that is that is uh, baked into the Constitution. It's the the, wet, the remedy that we have. But the fact that this legislature is actually unable to carry out its duties in a responsible way because one party refuses to do it is so depressing, and it and it kind of makes the whole thing feel makes the whole thing feel stupid and pointless. Which is totally. I, I, I
1: just need exactly to, what. The president's defenders would – exactly how they would like you to react. So if the Republicans were as brave in defending the president as he is himself, they would open by saying, look, he's innocent. He wasn't in town when the crime you're saying was committed took place. He's like it's open and shut case. Instead, they made they. Um, I mean, ranking Member Collins gave an entire opening statement, didn't mention the word Ukraine, so that, by, by talking about the process and all that. So the idea is that the the way the best defense is to make this seem like a total morass and to tire everyone out. Um I compl- now that
3: isn't that doesn't. Well, I'm not saying that I, I'm not so saying that I a, it's a morass. I'm saying that. It feels – because one party is acting in bad faith, it feels pointless. Yeah. Not that it – not that – No, it's not
4: pointless. Think about history. It's
1: not pointless, but –
4: Like what is – when we look back at this in 25 or 50 years, do we want to think that the country turned a blind eye to this kind of behavior? Like do we want to think that there were no consequences? No. We want something on the record that this is unacceptable. Something. If you think it happened.
1: So, but so that's from a tactical standpoint, they're trying to get you to feel the way you are, David, even if so that's one thing. Secondly, Emily's exactly right. The idea is that one is supposed to do one's duty regardless of whether it seems boring or seems enervating or whatever. And going back to first principles, when the entire question here is whether the president lived up or fell short of the standard of his office, going back to figure out what the original standard of behavior was seems crucial, even though it means going back to the founders. We do it all the time. So it's not that crazy. And then uh, the other thing is you never know what comes up and what can be found in investigations. Lots of investigations seem pointless until they don't. And because this is taking place in an election year, um, this is outside of the formal duty they're supposed to do as members of the of the House. But it's a really useful thing to have an investigation for the purposes of exonerating the president or for the purposes of condemning him. Uh, before he's up for re-election, about the way he does business. Does his short circuiting of the entire apparatus of foreign policy lead to better outcomes? And is it done for a good reason that's consistent with American values? Or is are his short circuitings hiring his private lawyer to go basically do U.S. foreign policy? Is that a danger to the to the country? Super useful. Uh, thing to have in an election year when you're thinking about reelecting I, you guys are especially
4: tot- when you have no justice department investigation whatsoever no. except the indictments of Lev Parnas and that other guy Igor Fruman.
3: Of course, it, that's what you guys are saying is of course absolutely right, and I and I you know I am not. This is not making me sympathetic to President Trump in any sense, and is not making me you know it doesn't make me deplore what the Democrats are doing. It, it just makes me deeply, deeply sad that without that, that one of the results of impeachment is an ex, is that it has exposed, and maybe this is what maybe this is what I'm so depressed about. It has exposed the rottenness of the American political system. We've looked in the foundation, the foundation is cracked. We have looked at the, you know, at the, at the beams and the beams are riddled with termites. This system which is supposed to be a buttress against demagogues, a buttress against cynical people being personally corrupt and being bought by foreign powers. In fact, because because of how the system is broken down, it isn't. And what the president's going to come out of this impeachment with in my mind is likely no change in the underlying kind of political dynamics of the the state of the country and with a playbook about how you handle an attack on you and ways to continue to lie and mislead and cheat and suppress the ability of Congress and the courts to do anything about you. So it, that the result is going to be the ineffectuality is going to be shown. Yes, history will vindicate. Well, actually, history probably won't vindicate because history is probably going to be written by... The horror show people who are who are currently in power, but hopefully history will one day vindicate this. But but that doesn't. The the system is going to be weaker in 2020 than it is in 2019, or at least it's we will see the weaknesses more visibly.
4: Here's one thought, historical thought to throw in here, which doesn't really contradict your point, but is useful. And I'm now borrowing from my friend Beverly Gage, who's a history professor at Yale. And one thing she has been pointing out to me is that. Nixon's uh, resignation did not actually change the fundamental political dynamics either. Like, it turned out that, you know, it didn't take very long for the Republicans to come back into power. And the underlying um, concerns of the American electorate transcended the problems of corruption that were specific to Nixon. Now, you can argue that's because he resigned and it was sort of like, you know, a boil that was lanced and that if the opposite happens now, we will have a different kind of return to the fundamental concerns that is much more troubling for the constitutional structure. But it is interesting to think that that was true then and the country kind of continued and, you know, went on to a better era of governmental reform in the 1970s.
1: I think if you're a Republican and you're hearing your your views, David, you would basically say, well, that's what it felt like when, when Bill Clinton was allowed to get away with what totally he got Totally good with. point. So, yes. so I think – so that's the first point. I think the second point is what's, what's objectively different in this case than in the Clinton case is when Clinton was being impeached, his approval record was quite high and got higher. In this case, you do have Donald Trump – 70 percent of the country thinks he did something wrong which I still think presents an interesting political question for Republicans. There are some Republicans who are in districts and in states where if 70 if percent of your voters think the president did something wrong, it's politically risky for you to say, even recognizing the strength of the Republican base, for you to say his phone call was perfect. And so how will that tension manifest itself with various people? but i would say just one of the so 70% think he did something wrong and the and the support for impeachment whether it's at 48 49 50 or 51 is higher than it was under uh clinton or george w bush who by the way we should all remember president trump would ask for george w bush to be impeached for the for the iraq war and then the final point i would make is i think people felt a certain sense of despair that you feel david Before the 2018 elections, uh, and a lot of those people felt nothing's going to change and the system is a a mess. Others uh, worked to elect Democratic candidates, elected a bunch of them. They took control of the House, and now Democrats are doing things in the House that those people who felt so frustrated – are happy to see happen so w- with respect to progress those people would feel progress had been made since 2017 by electing a, a house that could at least raise these questions uh, and do other things so even in our short rate recent space of time people who have felt the way you have got an outcome that that improved the system somewhat by having house the house go into democratic hands
3: john so it's clear the House is on a fast track to get impeachment done, to impeach the president before the end of the year and that there will be a Senate trial shortly thereafter. Um, What for each party are the pros and cons of this pretty rapid approach?
1: Well, the, uh, the pros for Republicans is that it moves quickly and they just say, oh, my gosh, it's moving so fast. This isn't being done in a serious way. You've been trying to railroad him from the beginning. Um, And it gives them a process, a series of process arguments they can make, which um, which allow them to not have to wrestle with this basic tension, which is, did the president do anything wrong? And if he did a little something wrong, then that then once you pull that sweater thread, it creates a set of problems for them. You know, the Democrats have a tricky problem here, which is that um, they're trying to get this done uh, quickly because. Uh, I mean, for a variety of reasons, including the fact that a number of Democratic presidential candidates are going to be stuck in the Senate, unable to talk and get out of their chair for January. And I think that, that Nancy Pelosi has always been worried that the, the country has a limited um, attention span for this, a limited uh, passion for this, and that she's got a bunch of members in districts that are close who want to get back to the business of campaigning and talking about issues. So she wants to have been able to say, we did a professional investigation, we voted more in sorrow than in anger, and then we got back to business. Uh, and the downside for them is that, they, that, that that takes too long. Basically, the president can say, I'm trying to do work here, and, and uh, Democrats are just you know getting in my way.
3: KFS listeners, our annual conundrum show is going to be live at the Fox Theater in Oakland, California on December 18th. We are fired up. To come to Oakland in a couple of weeks. We have a special guest, Adam Savage of Mythbusters, is gonna join us to solve conundrums for you. And there are still tickets available. Go to slate.com live to get those tickets. And you can still tweet conundrums to us if you use the hashtag conundrum at Gabfest. We would love to see your conundrums. There's so so many good ones. John and I have they're awesome. Gone through. I just oh, went you did. You them? went through them. So fun. Uh, just to, so a couple we might we might or might not deal with. Would you rather lose your memory or all of your creativity? That's a great question. How do you tell your best friend that the woman he introduced you to is the love of his life and his future wife appears to be a disaster waiting to happen? That is like such a real life problem. All of us have faced that. No idea what the right answer is, but maybe Adam Savage can can bust that myth. You can pick one member of the Beatles as your ally in the zombie apocalypse. Who do you pick? That is a crazy question. First of all, a bunch of the Beatles are dead. They're probably already zombies. That wouldn't even work. <laughs> I mean, I'm interested in the question. I'm interested. But is that just like which member? No, I know. Which Beatles <laughs> do you like? I mean, I don't know.
1: I, well, I, I know, but don't, don't eat okay. your seed
3: corn. Anyway, go to slate.com slash live. Get tickets for our conundrum show December 18th in Oakland, California. Aura Frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Kamala Harris dropped out of the presidential race this week, months before the first voting. She is by far the highest profile candidate to leave the Democratic race, although she wasn't even the only one who dropped out this week. Steve Bullock, the Montana governor, dropped out as well, leaving us with only...
4: Oh, I didn't know that. That's a bummer. That's all right. I like They're, him. Oh, there are
3: only 10 to the 14th power number of candidates still running, so still plenty plenty more to to, to fall away. Harris had rocketed near the top of the polls several months ago with her attack on Joe Biden about bussing in the first I think it was the first democratic debate but has been sagging ever since. So so why Emily did she need to drop out and why did her campaign flag? Those are I think those are two separate questions. I, One is sort of a practical question, the other is like a what went wrong with mm-hmm. her message or her how she conveyed it.
4: Well, she was running out of money. That was what she said. So there's the answer to the practical question. Why did her campaign flag? I basically subscribed to the theory that it was never completely clear what she stood for and that there's a kind of triangulating uh, quality to her politics that proved a problem that she couldn't really surmount. And I wasn't particularly surprised by that when I was reporting on her when she was running for the Senate in California in 2016. I saw some of that, and I think there's something about – politics for a lot of people that tends to feed that. And at the time, I was particularly aware that she was the attorney general of California. She was one of two black women elected to statewide office. And I think that challenge has kind of informed her approach to politics and the guardedness that and her kind of tendency to play it safe a little bit. As a senator, she was a bolder liberal by far than when she was attorney general or district attorney in San Francisco. But as a presidential candidate, I just don't think she like found her thing. I also think that there are some sexism and kind of latent um, skepticism about black candidates that was coming into play and that uh, seemed to be affecting some of the people who might have been her supporters. I was really struck by this point that Estad Herndon, who's a politics reporter at the New York Times, made in a, on The Daily, uh, the New York Times podcast recently, he said he was talking to black male voters and they were skeptical about whether she could win and whether they wanted to support her. And that's a small percentage of the whole and that doesn't excuse or like explain the white people who are flocking to Pete Buttigieg, et cetera. But it did make me have a, some greater understanding of why Biden's support with uh, black voters has been so strong, even though Harris seemed like she should be a formidable alternative.
3: Yeah, John, I find her – I mean I I just have been confounded because she she's almost like uh, – I'm trying to think of it. This is something from physics where she occupies every space – all at once, like she's a mm-hmm. woman, she's progressive, she's moderate, right. she's a woman of color, like she she was like so everywhere that she wasn't anywhere in some ways, and this seems to be an electorate that really mm-hmm. wants, they really want their candidates to be kind of re- very well defined, and the that broadness that she represented came to be unclear and unhelpful, and I, 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 mm-hmm. I yeah, it's, you do feel like it running in 1992, well, well a black woman running in nineteen ninety two probably had problems, but running in running in two thousand eight two thousand sixteen that would have been a better space to be in.
1: Well, what what you describe, uh, I believe is this is true that five thirty eight when they looked at the candidates at the beginning of this race did some Venn diagramming and and she I think had the best Venn diagram in terms of capturing and and having constituencies in all of the different groups that make up the the Democratic coalition, and so by that measurement they were they were bullish on her as a candidate who had at least had the upside opportunity to reach into all the different uh groups we're we're engaging in two things that we all recognize are really hard a trying to um capture a moving picture of a dynamic race yes um because who knows what the hell this race is and um nevertheless candidates and voters and donors and all that have to kind of try and figure out what the race is but we all recognize that this is a hard thing to do and and um and then also uh, a corollary to that or an offshoot of that is it's very hard to tell what what really did a candidate in i think having said all of that as a preamble what emily says i mean to be both a woman and um a woman of color is those are tricky. Those are hard things in politics, even in a in a party that um, cares about uh, or, or I should say doesn't or says it doesn't care about those issues as impediments to the office. Um, one of the figures that, that supports that, I think, is the polling that has shown that Democrats, when you ask them, would would you vote for a woman for president? They say, absolutely, I would. And then when asked if they think their neighbor would, who is also a Democrat, they would say, oh, no, they wouldn't. A lot of that informs the way in which people think about candidates who don't fit, you know, the traditional uh, or I guess, quote unquote, traditional mold.
4: And finally, the element of her. Uh, record as a prosecutor didn't help her in the way that it seemed like it could or should have. And I think part of what happened was that she just got dunked on on lefty Twitter and among young people, and she didn't have a good answer to it. Like, I think she could have bounced back from that, but she overclaimed, tried to position herself as a progressive prosecutor, which she really wasn't as a DA and or as the attorney general. And I still feel like she could have just run on it and figured it out, but instead they kind of froze, which goes to the calculated, guarded, like uh, not very nimble problem I think she has sometimes had.
3: So the Harris fade or the Harris banishment, and Elizabeth Warren's recent struggles suggest a retreat from women candidates in this race. And of course, Klobuchar also not doing well. Tulsi Gabbard not at the top anywhere and a, and theres just seems to be this sense uh, I don't I don't know how to describe it except as a polling sense that Democrats feel they need to stick with a good old white guy even if in mayor Pete's case the good old white guy is young and gay and inexperienced that's still safer than a woman what is up with that Emily Or am I overreading it I mean, I or no,
4: I don't think you're overreading it. I mean,
3: just or let me put phrase this a different way. I'm agitating myself as somebody who does not wish for Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders to be the Democratic nominee. I'm very agitated by their continuing strength. Should I be agitated, John? Or is there is there any chance like this this uh, this kind of retreat to the white guy will fade?
1: Best to ask this of the white guy. Um, <laughs> I think you you have some... The um, other white guy. You, I, I think you have some intersectionality and some uh, challenges here which are hard to pull apart. Bernie Sanders has a committed, devoted following that is um, impenetrable and is Bernie Sanders specific. Um, and so... That's a kind of you got him locked in around that, which which doesn't necessarily have to be. People have ascribed um, various things to that group, but it, it, that's a kind of pro Bernie group that's going to stick with him till the end. Uh, then with Biden, you have um, some electability power there. He was at forty nine percent in our in CBS's last poll in African-Americans, forty nine percent support. The closest, I think, was was maybe Harris and she was thirty four points away. So to the extent that Harris and Booker, Booker was just quite slightly behind Harris. They were both making the case with African-Americans that essentially you need somebody who's going to be able to advocate for African-American views. But even in their own party, African-Americans liked something about Joe Biden more than them. So what's my point? My point is that electability there or familiarity or connection to Obama or something is putting Biden in the first position with those voters. And not identity, age, color, or any of those issues, and then with Buttigieg, I think you have a you could potentially have an, an a, a kind of fleet or moderation um, from people who worry that um, with Sanders and Warren and the initial kind of heavy left um, way that this race got out of the gate um, that that 's where some of the kind of the moderate energy of the party is going, so I guess my point is that. There are other factors at play here, and I don't know the amplitude of those of those factors in answering your question david, which is is the obvious one though, which is that basically it looks like a a, a white field here at the end I
4: mean one way to think about this is that Biden and Buttigieg are standing on the policy ground that's the most popular like it's not crazy to right. think that that makes them more electable, particularly on their Healthcare policy answers. I also shout out to um, or question, I guess, about Biden's new ad about Trump being laughed at around the world, which I thought was quite effective. And I found it such a relief to <laughs> have a Democrat taking straight aim at the Republican opponent and kind of leapfrogging ahead to the general election. And in that context, like looking like a strong alternative. I, I worry about Joe Biden's uh, Propensity to self destruct. Though, you know, as I think I mentioned last week, now that I'm thinking of him as having a stuttering problem, I feel more generous. Still, I don't know. David, is that when you say that you really don't want him to be the candidate, are you worried that he's going to blow it or do you think he'd be a bad president?
3: I, th- I think there's a high likelihood that he would blow it. I think he is, you know, he is prone to gaffes. I think clearly age is wearing on him but more importantly i think he would be a bad president for the future of the democratic party i think he doesn't come with ideas he is he's he will he would be extremely lackluster i think republicans he he would not bring a kind of aggressive enthusiastic buoyant agenda to the presidency that would galvanize democrats and would would carry forth for years to come whereas i think the other candidates, I mean, all of the other top candidates, including Sanders, but Sanders, Buttigieg and Warren would bring a dynamism and energy that would galvanize the Democratic Party and make it a stronger, more effective party overall. I, I think there's there was a piece maybe a couple of months ago where someone was writing about the problem with Biden is that he could win the presidency and that would be great. And I would, of course, vote for him a 100 times out of 100 against, against Donald Trump. But that the Democrat that it's very likely that Democrats would have a huge electoral set of losses in the years to come afterwards because he, he could not hold the party together, make it a meaningful and energetic party. That's my real concern. What if he's more for the future? Like-
4: what if you pick someone like Stacey I, Abrams? I don't even
3: me. ever want to hear anybody say matter. who their running mate is. It makes no difference. Nobody cares about anyone's running mate. <laughs> the running mate doesn't set the agenda. The running mate doesn't define the party. None of that matters. The president matters. The running mate doesn't matter. Right, John?
1: Well, only if you're Lyndon Johnson and John Kennedy in nineteen in 1960, so, which is to say, yes, you're right, but there is you, – you you can't say never, but uh, but basically – yeah. And I, and obviously, in these times of polarization and partisanship, um, it would be even less likely to help.
3: Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GavFest and on other Slate podcasts. Those other ones, which are also totally solid, good, often great. If you go to slate.com slash GavFest Plus, you can join today, become a member today, and you will get this bonus segment. We are going to definitively answer – finally answer the question of whether it is better to give or to receive. I know you've been wondering about that as you've been planning your your holiday season, perhaps buying presents or anticipating the presents you're going to get. Now you're going to know the right answer about whether you should plan on giving more or receiving more.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
1: It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?
3: We are joined today by beloved GabFest regular Ruth Marcus of The Washington Post. As teased repeatedly on previous GabFest episodes, Ruth has a new book out. It's called Supreme Ambition, Brett Kavanaugh and the Conservative Takeover. It's already been reviewed widely and brilliantly. It's been reviewed, in fact, by the president himself. The Ruth Marcus book, he tweeted, is a badly written and researched. that's him – researched disaster, so many incorrect facts – Fake news, just like The Washington Post. Congratulations on that five-star review, Ruth. So uh, I have two opening questions. One, did that tweet do anything for sales? And two, why did your book get under the president's skin?
5: Um, I well, it's very interesting that the book got under the president's skin because um at the time he declared it badly written and reseached, it was actually not yet publicly available for him not to read um but um and and it's also it was also a surprise that it got under his skin because in a sense, the book is about. Donald Trump's greatest triumph, which is his ability to reshape the federal judiciary generally and to finally achieve the conservative dream of um, seizing control pretty firmly of the Supreme Court. So I think he should have embraced it. Um it but it did help with some sales. Um and I was particularly struck by his use of the word receiched because I thought it rhymed with something that might have been on the president's mind.
3: Mm. Bleached Okay. Teached. Beached like a yeah. whale.
4: <laughs> um I have a question, Ruth about your wonderful opening which which really is both fun to read and revelatory, you report that Justice Kennedy, when Neil Gorsuch was retiring in 2017, requested a private meeting with the president so that he could put forward Brett Kavanaugh as a future nominee if Kennedy himself retired. So, I mean, first of all, this is such an interesting bit of reporting. And second of all, like, what do we make of this? Is this perfectly fine that Kennedy is making this suggestion like he why not? or do we think there's something squirrely about a justice? Is there something sort of <laughs> quid cro- quid pro quo esque oh, thought we had gotten rid of that word and yeah, it well, it bribery. does it does feel like a trade that essentially Kennedy is suggesting implicitly and I'm sure not explicitly, huh, maybe you should consider another former clerk of mine since Gorsuch and Kavanaugh both clerked for Kennedy and maybe that will make me more amenable to stepping down.
5: Um, Well, uh, really great question and really great point. And before I answer it, I want to actually share with the GabFest audience um, that GabFest, I'm so pleased to be here in part because actually being a GabFest irregular was extremely helpful in the production of this book because there was more than one person who I called up, um, some of whom were not necessarily inclined to talk to me, who said, I wouldn't talk to you, but I hear you on Gabfest, and they would say something like, I think that John yeah. Dickerson or I think that Emily Bazelon um, is really smart, Never so David I'll talk Plotts. to you. So thank you, Gabfest. <laughs>
2: no, no. I, no.
3: I, no. I, no. The I, phone, they're wise, they're I, wise I, listeners.
1: The phone, I, phone would come I, crashing I, down upon the I, Now I'm in yeah.
5: trouble and all the hard questions <laughs> are coming. Okay. Uh, About the Kennedy intervention, it was a really, really interesting moment from the White House point of view, as you suggest, Emily. They desperately, desperately, desperately wanted to secure Justice Kennedy's nomination and would do really whatever it took to make him comfortable in um, thinking that if he stepped down, his seat would be in capable and responsible hands. And so... One way they did that was by nominating Justice Gorsuch, who had been a clerk, but not quite a favorite clerk of Justice Kennedy's. Then comes the Gorsuch swearing in. Justice Kennedy asks for a few moments with the president, and he mentioned, hey, there's somebody who's not on your Supreme Court list, who's a former clerk of mine, who you should really consider— this guy, Brett Kavanaugh, who, of course, the president had heard of and had refused to have on his list, um, primarily because he was viewed by the president as a Bushy. Judge Kavanaugh, now Justice Kavanaugh, had not only worked for President George W. Bush, had not only been nominated to the federal bench by George W. Bush, but he had actually married George W. Bush's secretary, who was something like a surrogate daughter to the Bushes. So he was the ultimate Bushy swamp creature, And Trump really didn't want to have any of it. But once Justice Kennedy made this suggestion, once they were really eager to get Justice Kennedy dislodged from that seat so they could fill it with their own person, the president started to say, hey, who's this Brett Kavanaugh guy? Lo and behold, just a few months after that, um, Brett Kavanaugh's name turns up on a list, yes, unveiled on the very day of a Federalist Society convention in November.
1: Um, just on the on the list point, um, w- explain to people why that was so notable with respect to the timing and also the, the people on the list relative to what Republicans had done in the past when asked during the in a campaign, you know, the kind of person they would uh, uh, elect to the Supreme Court and why that was so important for Trump.
5: The so thinking was and. The president had honestly been thinking about it and raising it with people beforehand, the then candidate, um, to do this very unusual thing of coming up with a list because it was a list and only a list that was public that would really satisfy social conservative evangelical voters that they could trust this thrice-divorced, once-abortion-rights-supporting uh, New York um, former Democrat named Donald Trump with um, the incredible power of filling a Supreme Court seat.
3: Is Trump thrice divorced? I
5: thrice it, married.
3: So, Ruth, it, I, when I think back on Brett Kavanaugh and his uh, appearance on the Supreme Court, um, the number one thing I think about, of course, is uh, Christine Blasey Ford. And there was – it was extraordinary hearings in, in – uh, when was that? 2018?
5: It was the fall of 2018. Fall of 2018. It was only – September 27th, only a 2018. 2018, yes.
3: So looking back at that, what is your sense about why after this incredibly persuasive testimony from – from uh, Christine Blasey Ford about a sexual assault that she said uh, Brett Kavanaugh committed against her. Why did Kavanaugh survive and pass through so uh, easily?
5: Well, not entirely. I don't think he would call it easily. Um, I think he would call it painfully. Ooh. But he, he got through um, with uh, a vote or two to spare. Um, I, I think the answer to the question is very clear, and it's um, – really embodied in the title of this book. It's called Supreme Ambition, not just because it's about Brett Kavanaugh's ambition, which um, really appeared at a remarkably young age, shortly after he graduated from law school. That's his ambition. But the book is about a greater ambition, um, which is the thwarted for 30 years ambition that goes back to the failed nomination of Robert Bork, goes back to the somewhat and um, significant disappointment that Bork's eventual replacement, Justice Kennedy, was for conservatives, to the huge disappointment that Justice Souter was, named by George George H. W. Bush for conservatives and the conservative determination that these um, gaffes of the past, that the the moments that they had squandered, would not be repeated again, and so that this was their moment to finally get the fifth vote on the court. They were they were um, absolutely determined that it would not be denied them, and so when Judge Kavanaugh's nomination ran into trouble, that might have led a different president or a different Senate in a different time to abandon him and look for an alternative. They were going to do what he took because, as uh, Chuck Grassley's chief nominations counsel told me, Kavanaugh had become too big to fail.
4: It seems to me that there's a connection between the ambition you're talking about For Kavanaugh's nomination and the too big to fail and Mitch McConnell's, you know, genius play to stop Merrick Garland, uh, President Obama's nominee for Scalia's seat, like just this recognition um, increasingly powerful in the Republican Party that these – Norms and niceties that have allowed the American government to function and had some bipartisan uh, support are just, like, not worth it. Like, voters don't care about them. They're not going to stop Republicans from winning elections. And so, like, we're just going to ram our people and our um, goals through. I mean, is that part of what was going on here? I I think it's
5: absolutely part of what was going on here. And I think it has its um, current day still unfolding analog really in the impeachment proceedings where there's not a lot of willingness on the part of Republicans to grapple with the significance and seriousness of the underlying facts and to have a debate on the merits about what does and does not, if anything does ever, um, rise to the level of a high crime and misdemeanor. Mitch McConnell is a very important figure in this whole story because he is the he is actually behind the scenes pushing Trump to come out with the darn list already because he knew it was going to be a motivating force for his voters and the thing that he cares about the most is maintaining his Senate majority. So it's this ruthlessness that we saw both with the um, I'm going to call it theft of Merrick Garland's seat on the Supreme Court and with getting Kavanaugh across the finish line, I think it's important to understand the mindset on the other side, which is um, Republicans and conservatives will look at, and they'll look back to the Anita Hill-Clarence Thomas hearings and the last-minute nature of those allegations. They'll look to the last-minute nature of uh, how the Christine Blasey Ford allegations against Justice Kavanaugh surfaced, and they will say, as Brett Kavanaugh did in that incredibly volcanic testimony that this was a partisan smear campaign. And in the end, um, Democrats would do whatever it took to uh, to try to stop him. So there is a conviction on both sides that the other side is ruthless. Uh, I I think it's completely correct that both sides would try to do what it takes to achieve their aim. Uh, The reality is, is that Republicans, after having lost Bork, have just gotten so much better at it than Democrats have and I think have assembled the architecture through Leonard Leo, the Federalist Society, and the incredible sums of money that he's able to generate in support of these judicial nominees. They just have the architecture and the funding to get the job done.
3: Ruth Marcus's book is Supreme Ambition, Brett Kavanaugh, the Conservative TakeOver, get it and annoy President Trump, get it and delight yourself. Ruth, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. Good luck with the book. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you are having a beer with Brett Kavanaugh, as you might, as he apparently did back in the day, what are you going to be chattering about, John Dickerson?
1: My chatter is um, is about this lovely New York Times um, feature on the New York subway map. If you live in New York, the New York subway is a subject of some disappointment to you in your daily in your daily efforts.
4: Oh, you yeah. still appreciate it as being so much better well, than everyone yeah. Hashtag Eric's back off. Transportation system. Good. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I don't well, live in New York, but I always feel grateful seems, for it when it I am there. It in seems fitting
1: in the ethos of the Gab Fest that the two non-New Yorkers are weighing in on the New York subway system. <laughs> I'm anyway, a part, like we're both New
3: part-time New Yorkers. So well, back off.
1: Anyway, what I would like to do is uh, is celebrate the New York Times um, subway map, which uh, the New York Times has this great feature, which I encourage people to, to look at on the web, but also on your mobile device because they've optimized this. Um, anyway, it's the story of the redesign of the map in 1979 of the uh, iconic uh, New York subway map. And my favorite little fact about it, beautifully displayed in this, in this feature, is that when they redesigned it, the principal redesigner, whose name I'm going to butcher, but is, um, I think, Nobuki Nobuyuki Sarasi, Sarasi, who was a sculptor and a painter, In making the redesign of the map, one of the things they found of the old map is that straight lines were irritating to people and confusing. And so what he did was he rode the subways with his eyes closed. All lines beginning to end. Rode the entire thing with his eyes closed in order to create... This map um that we all now know so well. And, um,
4: Wait, I don't get this at all. How do you make a map when your eyes are closed? What are you talking about?
1: So it's not it, that wasn't all he did. There was like a second step. It wasn't just he Good. didn't just okay. he didn't just hand in a napkin with, with like his mustard stains from Coney Island. Um and uh okay. and like his ballpoint pen. Um, but in order to get a feel for the rhythm and movement of the subway lines, he rode them with his eyes closed and then sort of drew the feeling of the, of the it's line. the curve. He felt in, the curve. And then, and then he felt
3: the curve.
1: Wait, what? He felt the Yeah, he curve. felt the curve. The feeling curves. of the, the line? Sense. Yeah. So Boy. he felt the curve. Thank you, David. Okay. Are you sure you've ridden the New York subways? Um, and so, anyway, that 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 feeling of the curve, that feeling of being in the in the subway, informed his uh, the graphic design of the New York subway map, which uh, now helps people get um, through the city uh, as best they can.
3: You know what the most oh, here's the most amazing fact to me about the New York subway map is about all New York maps in general. Like, look at a New York subway map. What, like, when you look at Manhattan, what's Manhattan is straight. Up and down, right? Sure, right. Sure. So you look at yeah. So, so and also and the long. top of Manhattan, it's long. But so it Manhattan, you would say, Emily. I'll pose this to you. Goes north south, right?
5: Uh huh.
3: Manhattan does not go do north south and south at all. Manhattan has like a fifteen degree tilt. Sure. That is, it's more like at you know one thirty. It goes from more like seven thirty to one thirty. But everyone's sense. the maps are all yeah. pointed to make it look like it goes from twelve to six because that's how people orient. And yet well, that's and the not. The grid
1: makes you think that way, and
3: the grid makes you think that way. And yet it's not. And then when you realize, like, oh wait, that's not north where I'm going. It's kind of, I'm going northeast. Uh, well, and
1: once you get down into Lower Manhattan, I mean, it's a, just a it's a mess, um,
3: and
4: you get lost if you're me.
3: So those of us who are ma- navigate pigeon like with magnetic north are constantly confused. Uh, Emily, what's
4: who is that person?
3: <laughs> i navigate very much you by by absolute direction. Like that's how I f- – I f- somehow where the sun is is how I feel where things are.
4: Huh. Well, and you're yeah. so much better at it than I am. Yeah. Of course, everyone in the entire world is better than navigating at uh, navigating than I am.
3: All right. What's your chatter, Emily?
4: My chatter is about this story in the Washington Post about the Statue of Liberty and its origins involving a celebration, an an effort by the French to celebrate uh, the freeing of slaves as opposed to the welcoming of immigrants. This is a revelation to me. turns out the story is from last May, but it only appeared in my social media feed this week. And it's a story from the Museum of the Statue of Liberty, which is – reviving this aspect of the statue's history. And I had never noticed this before, but there are these broken chains under the foot of Lady Liberty. And actually, in the original design, she would have been holding the broken chains in one of her hands. And then maybe we wouldn't have lost sight of this really interesting origin story. And, you know, it just... I'm happy to continue to celebrate the Statue of Liberty is welcoming immigrants, but it turns out the statue was erected six years before Ellis Island started being the processing center for those immigrants. And there was just this alternative rationale for it. The other fascinating part of the story is that by the time it was completed, African-American newspapers were actually editorializing around the celebration because by then, of course, the betrayal of the end of Reconstruction had come and they did not want America to be let off the hook for the way in which um, the failure to, you know, really make freedom mean what it should have meant.
3: Does, doesn't, uh, the the poem, the Emma Goldman poem was added much later, right?
4: Yeah, 1903, I think.
3: Um, cool. My chatter is a depressing chatter. It is about the story that was, the set of stories that ran this week about death rates in the United States. And the fact that young people, people in middle, young and middle age are dying more than they should be and that U.S. life expectancies are flat and not certainly not rising in the way that they are elsewhere in the world because of it and that you see because of suicide, because of gun deaths, because of drug deaths, obesity, diseases of despair, despair and poverty, people are dying in shocking rates. And there's an interesting Paul Krugman column this week which points out that this is a this is politically divided. That if you look at richer, bluer city, urban areas, life expectancy tends to be rising because education rates are higher, because of Medicaid expansion, because of stronger social support networks, and that red areas tend to be seeing the opposite. That in red areas we're seeing life expectancy declines, and blue areas we're, we're tending to see life expectancy rises. And it's um, it's bad news. It's bad news for the world. It's bad news for the country. It's bad news for these tens of thousands of people who are dying younger and sadder and in more awful ways than they should be otherwise listeners you continue to send us great chatters please keep them coming there were so many good ones there's so many who recommended that wonderful new york times story i didn't even not even including this the new york times story about the the prince of uh the the this royal family that was living in a in a palace in Delhi, in a kind of decrepit palace in Delhi. Oh,
4: my God. Ellen Barry's a crazy, amazing story. Ellen Barry is the greatest. Story.
3: Ellen Barry is such an incredible so writer. I've been following her. I mean, I've interviewed her for jobs over the years and just, like, always tried to hire her. But, my God, she's a good reporter and finds the most amazing stories. Agreed. Um, but that story, you should check out about this this family that was living in, in a palace in Delhi and, you know, claimed to be the princes of a of a, another state in India. And it's just Crazy story. Anyway, um, but the listener chat we're going to use is from Kathleen Bartems at at Kathy Bartems. I hope I'm pronouncing your name right, Kathy. And it's about Jonah Larson. And Jonah Larson uh, is a knitter or he's a crocheter. What's the difference between crocheting and knitting? Oh, everything. Okay. We're going to stop we'll there. We'll stop it's there. It's like the di- a yeah. different
4: stitch, a different motion. Okay.
3: So Jonah Larson is an 11-year-old who has been crocheting since he was five years old, and he has ADD, and he used crocheting to kind of keep focus, and t- it kept him out of trouble in school. And it's, he's become this Instagram icon, this person who is uh, gives talks about his crocheting, who's selling lots of stuff. And it's just a lovely story about a kid who has developed an unlikely interest, unlikely habit, and and is inspiring lots of other people to take up crocheting and maybe even knitting as well. Who knows?
4: Yes. Can I second this? This is how I survived listening to lectures in law school, was through knitting, because I also have so much trouble sitting still and focusing when I'm trying to listen. It's really, really helpful.
3: I wonder if you are somebody who knits or crochets while listening to this podcast. Drop us a note. That is our show for today. The Gap Fest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researchers, Bridget Dunlap, and Melissa Kaplan helped in DC, Alan Rosie Belson, Alan Pang in New York, Ryan McAvoy in New Haven. So many helpers everywhere, everywhere. Gabriel Roth is our editorial director, June Thomas is the managing producer of Slate Podcasts. You should follow us on Twitter at, at Slate and tweet your chatter to us there. And please come to our live show on december eighteenth. At in Oakland, Slate.com slash live for tickets at the Fox Theater. We look forward to seeing you there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I am David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next the week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? I personally spent a bunch of time buying presents this weekend. Not actually going anywhere, but just mm-hmm. going online and rapidly running through my list of ideas and then coming up with worse ideas. Uh, and this is the season where you you have to, if you are somebody who celebrates Christmas or Hanukkah or maybe other holidays, you end up getting some presents, giving some presents. And the question is, is it better to give or to receive? People's line is it's better to give. And and there is this is a cliche that you feel better when you give something to somebody. And it's more satisfying, and whereas receiving a gift is, you know, it's temporary. It's, uh, but the object is not necessarily something you would have chosen for yourself. And it, doesn't, it just doesn't have as durable a warm feeling as giving a gift does uh, and doesn't make you – doesn't fire the, the satisfying, moralistic, self-righteous neurons in your brain that come from, from giving a gift to somebody. So, Emily, better to give or receive?
4: I still think it's better to give. I am going to confess that I find the exchange of presents to be kind of excruciating. and Which is why you never let your children get them on their birthdays. Exactly. They still are angry about that or resentful. But I just I, – I'm sure this is just my own character failing. It's so fraught with potential disappointment I feel a lot of anxiety about being able to find for anyone something that they might actually want as opposed to, like, my idea of what they might want. And then when you are not sure and you're giving it, that always makes me worried. But I would pick giving over receiving any day because I feel like the – it's, I, I, it's hard for – even when someone gives me a gift I do indeed like, I feel like it's hard to convey that in a genuine way and it's all just like fraught for me in a way that I feel kind of humiliated by.
3: John?
1: Well, first of all, you framed it in such an unappealing way to say that the idea <laughs> my, of – That's um, my specialty. <laughs>
3: yeah.
4: Let's have John reframe yeah. it. Well, it's not self-righteous way. to be.
3: GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today.
0: It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash.